Our third reading is from Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 10. A shoot shall come from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist, and faithfulness the belt around his loins. The wolf shall live with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid. The calf and the lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put its hand on the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. On that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal to the peoples. The nations shall inquire of him, and his dwelling shall be glorious. This is the word of the Lord. Well, hello and good morning, everyone. Welcome to Christ the King. We're so glad to have you with us for this uh, second Sunday of Advent. Uh, some of you may notice that we have switched uh, to teaching from our Old Testament reading, which in, in uh, this month is uh, a series of texts from the book of Isaiah. This morning, the text is from Isaiah 11. This passage, like many of the prophetic oracles found in the Hebrew Bible, is filled with images and pronouncements that can be intriguing but also sometimes quite confusing. Questions about who the intended audience was or the social setting that the prophet was addressing uh, may come to our minds as we hear this word about a shoot coming from the stump of Jesse or a wolf living with a lamb. What strange words. Clearly these pr pronouncements are poetic and lyrical in nature, but to what end? What sort of emotions and ideas should these words evoke in their original hearers? And even more importantly, what should these words evoke for us? A shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. What or who is the stump being talked about here? In the book of Isaiah preceding these verses, there has been tree and forest imagery um, being used to describe nations that have uh, experienced Yahweh's judgment. In particular, um, in this verse, the stump is one from the metaphoric tree that was Israel, ancient Israel, once high and lofty, uh, Israel in its long succession of mostly evil kings forgot their humble origins as slaves in Egypt who were radically delivered by Yahweh out of the hands of their oppressors. But now, as the years have gone by, they have emulated the nations around them, exploiting the poor and the immigrant in their quest for empire building and in their idolatry. In Isaiah's eyes, this can only ultimately be headed in one direction, judgment. And the Lord, long-suffering though he is, can finally bear no longer the cry of the vulnerable being oppressed by kings and a people who have no fear of the Lord or knowledge of justice. It is here Israel finds herself in Isaiah's day, in a race to the bottom, in a long and protracted downward spiral. 
She is a tree not unlike the other nations, capable of being an instrument of God's justice or drunk on her own power, the eventual recipient of his judgment, his righteous judgment. A judgment so severe that in the language of Isaiah, the tree will be reduced to a lifeless stump. Whether this particular pronouncement is addressing the unjust and idolatrous kings of Isaiah's day, maybe Ahaz or Hezekiah, or the ultimate failure that crescendos in the exile to come is really not that important. The reality in the end is the same. A long decline that is so bad that they can't even acknowledge that they're in decline until everything is gone. Temple, gone. King, gone. Land, gone. God, probably gone. This is what it means to be a stump in the poetry of Isaiah. It is to be so broken, so resistant to prophetic calls for reform, that you would follow your idols straight into the ground, straight into exile. What hope could there be now? Yes, long ago, there was a promise of God keeping a king on the throne, but surely that was forfeited in all of this. And as this harsh reality sinks in, the worst part is that you slowly start to realize that this is your fault. In fact, it's been our fault for a very, very long time. There have been prophets. There have been gracious warnings. But now you find yourself in the ground, like the lifeless stump of a tree cut down in deserving judgment. But the prophet claims that in this seemingly lifeless state, a sign of life will come. A shoot shall come from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of its roots. To mention Jesse at this later stage of Israel's story is to hearken back to the promise Yahweh's long ago promised to David, that namely that he would always have a descendant on the throne, that his people would have rest from oppression, and that they would experience rest from all their enemies. These are big dreams to bring up if you were in a downward spiral or in exile. But nonetheless, the prophet insists that this new Davidic ruler to come will be endowed with the spirit of wisdom and understanding, hearkening back to King Solomon's encounter with Yahweh. In fact, Yahweh's spirit will rest on him in such a way that with righteousness he will judge the poor, and decide with equity for the oppressed of the earth. In contrast with Israel and her kings, he will have the fear of the Lord, and his rule will be a welcome relief for the vulnerable and the downtrodden. One thing to note here is that um, Solomon has this encounter early on in his um, reign, and maybe most most of us are familiar with this, maybe from Sunday school stories, maybe you've heard the story. He asks for wisdom, and God gives him wisdom. It's this really powerful thing, and and then he's like going to build this temple, which was the dream of his dad, and David, and, and so he's like, I'm going to build a dwelling place for God. It's going to be a place where everybody can come and worship. Um, but the thing that doesn't always get highlighted as sort of like a minor key is that to do this, Solomon decides that he's going to, um, to uh, enslave some of his own people, and then he's also going to bring others to do forced labor to build this. And the irony of this should not be lost on us, right? So he's building this place that's supposed to be a place of flourishing, of shalom, of God's presence, of intimacy with God. And yet to do it, he's doing it on the backs of the poor. He's exploiting people, his own people, and also the foreigner, 
right? So this is, um, when I read this, this is something that kind of comes to my mind where I think how, how, um, how complicated this is, right? He has this real encounter, and it seems like he actually has wisdom, but in the end, right, he, his idolatry, like, just leads him astray. And idolatry will always lead you to a place where you ultimately are oppressing other people. It's kind of how it works. As the passage continues, we find out more about this ruler to come and what life will be like under his reign. Not only will his rule be good news for the poor, in the, in the wildest scenarios imaginable, the poet-prophet starts painting a picture of a world completely unlike our own. According to this description, the deep conflicts and schisms of the created order itself are resolved. Animals and humans no longer live by the rule of domination and subjugation. Instead, we are told that they live in harmony with God and each other. In language recalling the Garden of Eden, the prophet describes a world of peace, of shalom. Under his rule, the earth will be a place of all nations and culture, for as the prophet declares, in that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. All people, all the created order, in peace, at rest in the presence of this king. This is important, too, because sometimes when Christians begin talking about the nations, um, it, it starts to sound, in the end, sort of like maybe adjacent or inter, intermixed with sort of this kind of colonial impulse, right? And so when we, we talk about the nations, it's really kind of more about, it's still centering on us, really. It's still kind of a centering of like, well, maybe if everyone was sort of like Christian in the way that Americans are Christian, or maybe if, you know, we can reach everyone with what we think the gospel is, then they can get their act, you know, together, and, and then maybe Jesus will come back, or, you know. And I hope I'm not caricaturing it too much, but I think there are some things that sound very, very much like that. Um, but I think this picture is dis, uh, very, very different um, I think it's, it's probably much more like the day of Pentecost, right, where there's incredible unity, but there's diversity. People don't come together to speak one language like the Tower of Babel, right, which is kind of this archetype of empire where everyone is unified under, we can see this in nations all over the world today, where everyone comes under a common uh, uh, language franca, and they, they have one language, and that's the way that the empire exerts their control over them, right? Um, but instead, of the day of Pentecost, people hear like the words of God, the deeds of God, in their own heart language. So they're somehow profoundly brought together, but at the same time, there's like this diversity of the, of the different ethnic groups and backgrounds and people's, their uh, identities are not a race, their cultural identities are not a race, but rather they're celebrated in this kind of beautiful coming together. So that's, that's more what we should be thinking about when we hear this picture. I think when we throw around language of ruler or king in conjunction with the nations, we just think, oh, here we go again. It's just the colonial enterprise all over again. But that's really different than I think what the prophet is envisioning. So you've got to imagine how these words are going to be uh, heard. And, and maybe this won't be that hard for you today because if you're in a hopeless place, whether it's in Isaiah's day or today in this moment, the poet puts language to some of our deepest longings. Even if we're hesitant to surrender to a sovereign ruler, it's not very in vogue these days. Uh, surely his reign sounds like the home that we all long for. Peace and rest from the forces of violence and death in the world. The healing of all relational strife and abuse. Who wouldn't want that? It seems too good to be true. Too much to ha ask or hope for. But the prophet doesn't ask what's plausible or probable 
doesn't seem to be interested in taking a poll on what seems reasonable to hope for. Instead, with subversive boldness, he proclaims a different reality, one that God will bring about despite all the failure and idolatry and subjection in this not-so-distant past. Y'all, this is good news. This is good news not just for those in Isaiah's day who will be brought through the fire and into a place of rest. This is good news for us today. If you can relate, and I, I know that some of you can, and I, I, when I read these texts, if you've been in a place where you feel so broken, if you feel so um, cut down, and, and what's worse, maybe not everyone relates with this, but I think at some point we kind of look at some of our failures and we think, I, I did this, I, I was part of this, um, my family did this, our culture did this, and it just, we feel so lost, like how do we even get out of this, right? We know we're culpable, we can tell, even if sometimes it's things that are done to us, but often I think we feel like, well, we had some role to play in this, and, and now here we are at the bottom. It's a bold word, a bold world proclaiming a new, a new world and a new reality. The New Testament authors, in passages like the reading from Romans that we heard earlier today, identify this Davidic ruler to come, this shoot of Jesse, emerging from the stump of failure as Jesus of Nazareth. Spoiler alert. In the, in the Gospels, Jesus will identify as the one whom the Spirit of the Lord is on, who is anointed to preach good news to the poor. His life and ministry are filled with demonstrations of God's compassion and healing and mercy. His authority amazes some and makes others feel very threatened, especially the powerful, even to the point where they want to put him to death. Many of the first parts of Isaiah 11 seem to point to his earthly life and ministry, about him bringing justice, about him being a good ruler. Um, he operates um, at a different level, not judging by what his eyes see or deciding by what his ears hear. It's kind of a curious line, but I think it really is pointing to this reality that he sees into the very minds and hearts of people. He doesn't just judge on appearances like we so often do. And yet, the second part of the passage, those images of shalom and the healing of all creation still feel very far off, if we're honest. We look at our world today, and it seems as screwed up as ever. It often feels hard to imagine a world uh, set to rights, where true justice is done for the poor and the oppressed. We are a people in between in between the beginning of a whole new way of life and the slow death of the old realities, in between incarnation and the second coming, between a desperately hopeless world and the faint glimmer of hope on the horizon. Advent is a time of waiting. It is a time that reminds us of our longings to see the world brand new, restored from all its brokenness. Advent is also a time for participation, a time to be aware of the Spirit's work in our midst, the Spirit who aligns our hopes to the horizon of new creation. We wait, but we do not wait as those who have no hope. The ruler has come. The king has come. His kingdom is slowly taking root like a mustard seed, small but unstoppable. He has given us his spirit in our waiting. The same spirit that anointed him to be good news for the poor. The invitation is open to join in his life 
and to live under his reign through the Holy Spirit as we wait for the fullness of his rule to become, come upon the earth. And y'all, this, this invitation will be lived out in as many ways as there are people in this room this morning. Uh, the contours of the life that Jesus offers us today have already been put on display in his earthly life and ministry, um, his character, the way that he interacted with people. Um, but the gift of the Holy Spirit is that there is endlessly creative possibilities that are available to us in our present moment. And I just want you to think back to that image of the stump and something that we, we don't look at and we don't, we don't see possibility, we don't see life cut down to the ground. But I want you to think about out of that, something green, something small, something hopeful springing out of that. That's what it's like to live life in the kingdom of God, not just in the past, experiencing Jesus' ministry on earth, not just in the future when he brings his, the fullness of his kingdom to bear on this earth, but in the present. The present is a lot like looking for these little, this little uh, sprout coming from something that feels like, well, this is, this is, um, you know, this is the bottom. This is the failure. This is the thing that we feel the most ashamed about. But yet there is God bringing hope in the midst of that. We can know, even from a passage like this, the good character of the king and the beautiful eventualities of his kingdom. What we don't always know yet is how that promise of past and future goodness will transform our present moment. What is it about Jesus that makes a difference in 2022 here in our community in Northwest Arkansas? This is a question we must answer together as a community. What will it look like for us to wait and work together to let our lives be reoriented to the work of God in the world? How will we hold each other up when the gap between our longings for a new world and our experience feels like a chasm that's uncrossable? What does it mean to hope together? Not with hollow platitudes, but with deep sincerity and vulnerability. Where the spaces will come together to worship and wait on God? How will we be a people collectively whose lives are good news to the poor? And I say this kind of in hope for what our community is becoming, but I also want to acknowledge that even in the short time that I've been here, from the very first time we, we visited, my wife Elise and I, it was something that was notable in the midst that we heard people talking especially during the prayers of the people, which is, we're going to have here in a moment, we heard people lifting up those who are often overlooked in our society, the poor, the refugee. These are people that were named in our community. And it was something that was, a, it was like that sign of life. It was like that sign of hope for us. And so I know that that's been part of the history of Christ the King. It's something that I look for and hope for. I'm not here to give you a very prescriptive, like, this is exactly how we're going to apply this passage and all that. I'm, I'm just wanting to open up some new vistas and new possibility. And maybe, maybe the beginning feels a little bit uh, heavy, and it is, but that's life, y'all. I mean, it's, it is kind of heavy, right? And, uh, you know, uh, Elise doesn't really like this about me, but often I say, well, the, you know, she's like, you're, you're, you spend so much time talking about the bad news, and I was telling her the other day, well, the good news only makes sense to me in light of the bad news, right? And I think we just have to be honest about that. We have to say, what kind of situation are we really in here? You know? And it's right in the midst of that reality, not just insulating ourselves from the suffering of the world or the problems in ourselves, in our families, in our lives, 
Um, but it's actually taking a hard look of that and then asking the second question, not falling into nihilism or denial, but actually asking the second question of what it means to hope in a God who is ultimately going to bring the world to rights, but also is working in our midst. That's a real live question. So this is the, this is the good news set in the reality of the bad news. I would hope that we continue to learn to wait together. Sometimes the spiritual life, it feels like um, it gets abstracted. People talk about it, like either it's like almost like spiritual life hacks or, or maybe a very pious way of kind of virtue signaling to one another. Um, but I think in a lot of ways, it's actually really practical. It looks like showing up. It looks like um, getting together with others and not living in isolation. I think especially coming out of COVID, but even just in our culture in general, people tend to be really isolated. When I spend time with people in our church, I hear that refrain over and over again. Um, I think people would be shocked to, like if they were to sit where I'm sitting with so many different people to realize that that's a thread that in some ways is so common to us. And not just in the church, that's just in the church, right? But also in our world, maybe even more so. Um, so what does it mean to move towards one another? in our waiting and our hoping? What does it mean to be reminding ourselves of the faithfulness of God in the, in the past, both in Scripture but also in our lives, and, and to use that to reorient our hope towards both the, the future hope of, of God's coming and Him bringing His kingdom in fullness, but also His present work in our midst, right? We pray every week in this church, we pray for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. This is like, this is a very basic, simple liturgy before all of the liturgy that we even say, right? It's something that Jesus gave us to pray. And it has an orientation. And the orientation is a hope for God's kingdom to break into this present reality. It doesn't say to pray for you know, his kingdom to come on earth, like in some future way or in some abstract spiritualized way. But we actually pray right as we are, right in the middle of this. So my hope, in, in close, just my hope for us in this Advent season is that we learn to wait together that we learn to hold one another up when we're dealing with the, the bad news that we have to face before the good news makes sense, um, that we would learn to, to pray together, that we learn to be a, a people who look to the Holy Spirit, who is anointing us presently as we, in our union with Jesus by the Holy Spirit, that we would be a people that are good news for the poor. I think there's a lot of different questions. Again, I don't want to spell that out for you this morning, but I hope that it stirs us. I hope that, that those questions linger with us and that they're the places that we go to God and we ask what it means for those things to be true of us. May it be so, in Jesus' name.